Welcome to this Food Thing podcast. This is the place where we talk about our relationship with food, whether it is friend or foe, easy or less so, and how it affects our behavior. Here's today's episode. Hi, welcome back to Love This Food Thing podcast. I'm delighted to be joined again by Gracie Carpenter. Gracie, hello. We're going for part two, aren't we? Yes, we are. Yeah. If anyone happens upon this episode before part one, I encourage you to listen to part one. Part two will be just as thrilling and interesting, but just to get the continuity. So very briefly, by way of reintroducing Gracie, Gracie emailed me. Um, Part of her email that she uh, shared with me was that she grew up with alcoholic parents, eventually moved to the care of her grandparents. Her mother committed suicide and then Gracie fell rapidly and violently into the clutches of anorexia. She was hospitalized and a series of, of hospitals, I think it was six, I think you said, Gracie, or six places that you went to. Yeah, that's correct, yeah. Yeah, and took her the most extraordinary effort from Gracie to get herself well. And where we'd got to, which is why we did a part two, where we'd got to was the second pivotal moment or pivotal story that happened to Gracie where she decided to live. And that was, well, you're going to have to listen to part one, but that was after her best friend died. So should we pick it up from there, Gracie? Can you remember the point that you got to? You just told this wonderful story about your mum appearing to you and, um, mm, yeah. Can you go yeah. from there? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I think the the main thing for me after after my best friend died was um, the flashbacks. I think I've always experienced that when someone dies. You, It's almost like, you, you know, in books when people describe their life flashing before them in like yeah. a, in, in a sort of life-changing moment and you see everything and suddenly I remembered in such clarity the last time that I'd seen her and that that for me was the most important part of sort of realizing that she'd known that, that was the last time that we were going to see each other um and the things that she said about um you know finding the will to live again and, and to do it for her um and I think even now you know when I go through um depressive episodes um or I feel that I do do revert back to that even even now yes that's exactly what you said and she was so joyful about life wasn't she and she wanted to be a writer and she lived every moment does she does she this isn't really part of the podcast but has she appeared since have you seen her again um I the, the weird thing about Jemima is that I sort of the way I remember her and the way I feel her is is often just through looking at her writing, but also I do hear her in my in my head sometimes, mm-hmm. um, and I I often just think back to that moment, especially when um, it's a very dark place to be. But when I I have felt that I can't carry on, when things have become so insurmountable, and that's a very very isolating place to be, um, I will often hear her, and I will often weirdly dream about that day that I last saw her as well um and I feel like it's my brain's subconscious way of sort of remembering and, and restarting I suppose yeah it, well yes so you think it's your brain you don't think it's something else I I am a spirit I would say I'm spiritual I'm not religious um but I would say that I've I don't really see things I more feel them 
Yeah. I feel like it's a sensual thing for me. Um, particularly, like I said, I think I said last week about the rain with my mum and how I often feel very, very comforted. And also I evaluate and reevaluate a lot in the rain. So I feel like for me, it's more sensations and feelings than, than visual. When you were recovering, so let's go back to when you decided to live and you were recovering from anorexia, starting to eat again. I mean, yeah. even stand, could you? You were bedridden. Yeah. What was it like to start feeling in your body again? To be honest, it was terrifying. It was really scary. Um, I think I remember um, getting my periods back and, you know, a lot of people would have thought that would be something to rejoice, like my body's working again. But for me, I was almost ashamed. Um why that symbolized that for me that translated as me having gained a lot of weight and not being thin anymore um so it symbolized like a move away from thinness and from being um unwell um and I realized now that actually I wanted to be ill well my voice wanted me to be ill anyway Um, and I struggle with that a lot and I also struggled with really feeling incapable of regulating my emotions because when I was so underweight, I, you know, and the doctors told me, you know, the scientific reasons that my body was so shut down that it was only able to do like basic things. So I just didn't really feel anything. And I remember I, I couldn't really cry. Um, I, I didn't feel much at all. And then suddenly everything felt like it was waking up again and I could sense things so much more deeply. And I remember getting angry a lot and getting really uncontrollable bouts of anger and like these really intense emotions that I hadn't felt for a good year. And that was really scary because I didn't know how to deal with them. Yeah. I think that, that um, overwhelming sense feeling of anger is very scary. What did you do with the anger? Did you act it out? Well, it's a, it's a weird thing because even though I was physically better, um, I, I, I did have a, a lapse in my mental health again and yeah. it was a kind of move away from being solely anorexic to struggling with other things like depression and anxiety. Um, and I think also the problem was that I had become institutionalized. So I felt angry and, and upset when anyone talked about me being discharged because I was so scared of leaving. I didn't want to leave just because it had become comforting to me. So I feel like I lashed out quite a lot. Um, and I also was quite scared because I didn't feel like myself. Okay. Um, and I'd get very angry with the nurses and then I would get very upset after I'd snapped at them because I didn't ever want to upset anyone. But it was almost like I couldn't control myself. Um, I was very lucky that obviously the nurses understood and, and I would have conversations with them after I'd been angry and say, you know, I never, ever meant to say any of that stuff. And obviously they, they were trained professionals and they understood, but I was scared that I would upset people with how um, overwhelmingly strong and intense my emotions were. I would imagine and suggest that that's what was there in the first place, the anxiety and the depression, and that the yeah. anorexia was a, a way of or those symptoms. It became about the anorexia and about losing weight and about not eating because it was a distraction for me. Yeah, exactly. Because you didn't mm-hmm. want to feel that the intensity of the anxiety, the rage, the depression. None of us want to really feel those feelings because they can, they can knock us off our perch, can't they? Exactly. So, I I'm, think I'm not surprised it was like a, a tsunami, a tsunami yeah. of emotion. That's what it sounds like. Yeah, no, it definitely was, and I think. Being so young as well, like I was just about to turn 14, like I'd had Christmas in hospital and I had my 14th birthday in hospital as well. Um, And being so young, 
no no one apart from the people that I was in the, the ward with really understood no one my age I remember just I, I had this horrible feeling that I couldn't relate to my friends anymore um I couldn't like they just couldn't understand it because we were so young and obviously I never blamed them but you know they were just dealing with like crushes and you know mm. um you know schoolwork and starting GCSEs and I was having these really intense like almost adult emotions mm-hmm. um, and then that in turn angered me as well because I just really wanted someone to be able to relate to me um especially my age and I feel like the only people that could were people that were also very unwell so it became this weird sort of clinging on to the disordered world I suppose because it, it understood me more that's so interesting and yeah almost impossible for you to find someone your age that you could relate to who could also be helpful because I mean, 14, it's, I just think it's too young. Yeah. And and I think also I didn't really ever realize how young I was. I think now I see 13, 14 year olds and they look like babies, like they're so young and, you know, and I just felt very, very adult like, um, because of what I'd been through, I suppose. Um, So, So what happened? So you're 14, you leave hospital. Um, did you go back into, to living with your grandparents? Talk to me about, sort of 14 to 17. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, the, the year after, so I had two years out, so one year in hospital and then another year out where I made attempts to go back to school and I would just have, you know, what I now know are panic attacks, but I feel like at the time mm. I didn't really understand what they were. It was very physical. I would get shaky and and it was just this real fear of, of going back to reality, I think. And I would try and go into school for half a day and I just couldn't do it. So we ended up, I had some homeschooling and I just stayed at home. But it's interesting because at that time I was weight restored. But I often think of it as the most anorexic year of my life. Ah, let's talk about that. What do you mean yeah. by that? So I was so entrenched mentally in it. You know, I would scroll with these very, very damaging websites and I was just totally obsessed with food and watching food programs and watching documentaries about eating disorders I was absolutely obsessed Mm. um and also I had the worst body image of I've ever ever had um I was totally convinced that I was this monstrous I almost saw myself as like animalistic um, and I hated pictures of me um and I was just very 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 isolated and I, I, I even say now to you know when we talk about it as a family that that for me was worse than the year in hospital which is strange because obviously the year in hospital was very distressing but it it was a different type of isolation I think what um what animal did you see it wasn't necessarily like seeing an animal I just felt animalistic like I felt big and and like not human like it was very strange I just felt like this monstrous like thing okay which is weird I just felt very just very ugly and horrid and I just hated looking at myself and it was a really uncomfortable place to be. Um, and I think a lot of people would say, oh, you look so well, you know, and obviously they meant totally well by that. But I, it was almost like I wanted to scream at them and say, I'm not, I'm not well. I might look well, but I'm not well. And I think that's another thing where anorexia in a way, the fit, when you're so physically unwell, at least it speaks for you. Mm. Um, people see you and they know instantly that you're not well. Mm. And I struggled with with not being visibly unwell anymore and it becoming because obviously anorexia is a, is a mental illness, but with the physical side as well, when you're physically so emaciated, it's almost easy. To, I felt I like I didn't have to prove myself. I didn't have to prove that I was un, unwell because it, it, you could just see. Um, so that was a weird transition as well, I think. I think it's very interesting because 
Because you nearly died, clearly, from what you said in the first episode. Mm. I think it's very interesting, that feeling of being animalistic. Mm. And it's a very, um, what am I trying to say? Very primal, very basic feeling of that we're we're an animal. All right, we're humans, but we're an animal. We have a body and we're, we're very primal. We have very basic needs. We have basic functions. Yeah. And I don't think, I don't think we necessarily contact that so much mm. in our society. Well, no, not very much because we're busy being sophisticated and, you know, yeah, being on laptops and stuff. So I think that's fascinating that you you had that experience and clearly it was uncomfortable, but it didn't destabilize you. And I'm wondering, did how much support did you have, and and why didn't you relapse? So I was very lucky. Um, so my first experience of CAMS, um, the, the Child and Adolescent Mental Health Service, was not a great one, if I'm honest, just because I, I felt like it, it was a, it still is a very misunderstood illness. Um, but I felt like when I was initially referred, it was, it, it was all talking about the weight side of things. And actually, I just wanted to speak to someone about how I was feeling. Right. Um, and, you know, I've always said that the low weight is a symptom of, of the deeper problems. And you yep. You can put on as much weight as you want, but it's not going to solve anything. Yeah. Um, but I was very lucky that I do think that the eating disorder unit had formed a very solid foundation and I'd had very, very good psychotherapy there. But I was also very lucky because when I was discharged, I remained with CAMS for, till I was 18 and I had um, a mental health nurse called Nettie and she was an absolute godsend. And we, we still talk about her now. Um and she basically every single week for five years, I saw her without fail. Um, and she became like a mum, really, a mother figure. You know, we'd often, we, we would see each other in a, in a sort of more clinical setting, but we'd, she'd often take me for lunch or coffee or we'd go for a walk. Um, and she was so nurturing and it, it became, I actually looked forward to going to therapy. Um, mm-hmm. I didn't dread it at all. I really looked forward to it. And I do honestly think that she saved me in so many ways because it felt like it went beyond a professional relationship and it was actually, she was actually a friend and and a, and a nurturing figure in my life. And, you know, grandma and grandma said the same thing, that it was such a relief that I had someone that I, you know, I did, I loved her really. Like I felt a lot of love for her and, and, you know, I felt very intensely cared for by her. And I think that was, that was, it was just amazing really. And I think I remember when I was discharged, I almost didn't want to leave her. And I remember I wrote a letter to her and she wrote a letter to me um and it, it felt very symbolic I think and she'd said how how much she'd seen me grow in that time because obviously from 13 to 18 it's quite a big difference um and I was going off to university at that time as well so it was a massive massive transition um and it, it, it did feel right I think I didn't want to carry carry on anymore I didn't I didn't feel it was necessary at that time to go into adult services but I think she was such a big part in that that just having that knowing that every single week I would have that hour um, you know, it was so healing for me. Very, very healing. Well, you, I'm going to take a quick break, but just before we do, you had someone holding you and containing you, and then you were able to leave because you were healed enough for the next phase, yeah? We're going to take a quick break. Hi, welcome back to Love This Feeding Podcast. I'm here with Gracie. So, Hi. Gracie's, Hi. <laughs> Hey, little tiny hey. Gracie's just told us about a wonderful woman called Nettie who she saw every week from 13 to 18. 
And then they had a very healthy goodbye and closure of their relationship. And they wrote each other a letter. And Gracie went off to university, psychically able, physically able, emotionally, mentally able to leave a very nurturing relationship full of hope and confidence, I imagine. Is that a fair summation of it? Oh, definitely. Yeah, definitely. So you're out in the big wide world, having had more experience than many people have in a lifetime. What was that like? It was the main thing I felt initially was excitement. And it was Mm. very exciting, especially the first year of university as well. And sort of knowing that I could go out whenever I wanted to, and I didn't have to tell anyone, all those things that I think even without having gone through the things I'd gone through, everyone feels when they go off and they suddenly have all this freedom. Um, and then, you know, it's the first taste of being an adult, I suppose. Um, but I think it was also really scary. And I think, um, you know, before, whenever I'd been unwell, I was a child. So my family and my grandparents were always the ones that would contact and, you know, arrange everything. And suddenly as an adult, if anything happened, I had to do it all. You know, if I did have any sort of relapse, I would have to be the one that contacted the services. You know, I had to do all of that for myself. And I think that's been really difficult when I have, you know, luckily I haven't had a relapse where I've become underweight again, but I have had very intense lows um, and unfortunately more losses since that as well, um, since that time. Mm. And I think the hardest part is, is that, when you're in that place, the last thing you want to do is have to, or the last thing you feel capable of doing is ringing up, going through everything, you know, finding that strength to do it yourself. I still, in my head, sometimes forget that I'm expected to do that myself. And I sometimes still want to go, oh, can you do this for me? Oh, can you ring up for me? Um, and that's been a big, I think it's probably like reverting to that inner, inner child of mine, I suppose. It feels comforting to just be like, can you do it for me? Can you, can you ring up for me? Yeah, but I think that's all right because I'm 56, you know, Mm -hmm. and I was berating my husband in my head this morning because he's away and we've got builders here and all sorts and just going, I just want someone to do this for me. I'm not talking about a life and death situation. I'm just talking about someone phoning, my husband phoning the builder to say, why are you late? Rather than me, because I wanted to get on with my day. You know, I think that's very normal. Have you, okay, so I want to ask you about resilience. How resilient Mm -hmm. did you and do you now feel? Because resilience is about being being an adult is about being resilient and able to cope mm. with life, whatever yeah. life throws at you. And do you, I, you see, I had a kind of, I built a team around me, I realized mm, yeah. over the years. So I had a, a very strong support team. Have you yeah. done that too? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I have, I mean, people always say how unusual I am that, you know, I've, I rarely fall out with people. If mm. I make a friend, that's for me is a friend forever. Like I, I don't, I don't like much conflict. I get very stressed by it. Um, I'm also lucky that the family that I do have, I'm very close with, I live with my auntie at the moment, um, who's very young, she's only 37 and she is, has been such a a massive support to me, um, in everything. Mm. Um, but also I have so many friends, which I'm very, very blessed with, you know, I'm always on the phone to someone, always FaceTiming. Um, and I'm very lucky that a lot of my friends from home, especially who have known me for years and years and years, know me almost better than I know myself. So, you know, especially my best friend, um, Nance, who I literally talk to every day, she almost knows what I'm thinking before I know what I'm thinking. Um, Especially like we were talking the other day about how, um, what I love is that she sort of joke, makes a joke of when I'm 
I'm triggered by something or I'm made anxious by something. Yeah. Um, and it just sort of brings me out of myself, I think. Because it's very easy to to like cling on to things, especially because my brain is naturally wired up to demonise myself before anyone else. Um, I think that's definitely a result of, of anorexia. I, I've always been very self-critical. So in any situation of, of any form of conflict, or even if I make a mistake, I'm very it's very, I have to act quite quickly to avoid like going into this spiral of, oh my gosh, you're awful, you're awful, you're awful. Um, and that can be triggered by tiny, tiny things as well. So I'm very lucky that, you know, my family and friends know me so well. I do think that's probably a product of me being very open as well. Um, you know, I'm a very open book um, and it's pretty obvious when I'm not feeling good, um, which is, you know, it's not me even putting on a, an act. It's just, I'm normally very extroverted, outgoing, um, happy, you know, I, I love having a lot of fun and that's how I've coped. So I think it's very obvious when I'm not myself. Um, but I do think that's helped me. And I think that's been really crucial in in being able to to stay on solid ground as much as I can because, you know, I think being open and being able to talk about things the way I have nips it in the bud most times. Um, you know, if I feel a spiral coming on, I'll just blurt out how I'm feeling and, and we're able to talk about it. And nine times out of 10, it does get me get me back out of it again. Um, so I do think that's that's been, you know, essential in, in getting better and, and staying better. I think it's amazing that you have such a supportive group of friends and testament to you and how much they love you, that they're still with you. And also interesting that you didn't trash all your relationships. Could be speaking yeah. to someone else with a different personality who would have alienated everybody, who would have been angry with everybody for whatever reason, everyone's different. And also the whole anorexic shtick um, you know, to do with being self-critical, anorexic is perfect. It's a perfect mm. manifestation for someone yeah. who's self-critical. Definitely. I mean, I I always say that that every single girl I met in the ward, the eating disorder ward, we were all the same in that we were highly self-critical, extremely motivated. M- most of us were academic, you know, achieved a lot, um, worked hard, but we were all of those girls were so kind to everyone else. And we all had this thing in common where we never saw fault in anyone else, but we were the first ones to to berate ourselves. What do you think that's that's so interesting? What do you think that's about? Mm. I mean, having read a lot about anorexia, it's, it's strange, but it does seem that a certain personality type is often targeted by it. Um, and, and that's like the perfectionist. Um, and also the willpower, I suppose, because you've got to have such strong willpower to be underweight, you know, all the pain that comes with that because it's physically painful, you're cold, hungry, go against all of your natural bodily cues. You've got to be so motivated. And I think, you know, all of those girls were, but it was like we we diverted to something really unhealthy and really, really damaging. Um, and I think, you know, I think we spoke about this last week, but if you're able to divert that energy elsewhere, um, that that does work in, in getting better. But, you know, it was so interesting to see that although we were such from such, you know, different backgrounds and different places all around the country, um, and we, you know, we looked different, all of that, we we all had those qualities that were so similar. Um, do, you, do you think it's also about being un, being unable to bear uncomfortable feelings, isn't it? I think so. I mean... I I think I was I've I was probably one of the most open open people out of all of them and I think 
anorexia is is quite a devious illness. Like you have to tell a lot of lies. Mm. Um, you have to hide things. And I think I was always really terrible at that. Mm-hmm. And that was the part I struggled with the most. Um, and I think that's going back to relationships. I think that's maybe why I managed to to maintain those relationships because even if I had done something secretive, I found it so difficult to lie to people. And I, I really struggled with it morally. Um, and it felt like someone else was making me do that. I didn't want to do it. Um, and I think, you know, moments where I'd confide in my grandparents or my friends and say, like, this is actually what happened or I have actually hidden food or um, I'm, I'm feeling this, even though I told you I was feeling that. I think that has saved me a lot of times because I just physically can't lie. I can't conceal things and I can't, I don't like deceiving people. It feels so uncomfortable. Like I don't mind doing it to myself, but I hate, hate hurting or upsetting or deceiving other people. Did you ever, you've never been bulimic. You've never binged and purged. Um, so I was, ne- when I was anorexic, n- never. So when I was in the eating sword award, um, I think there was probably one time when I was becoming unwell, that I tried to, but in my head, my logic was I'd rather just not eat. That was easier for me. It was more comforting. I do think in my first year of university, I was I was verging on um, some sort of bulimia. Um, I, it was weird. I I'd, I'd got very invested in the gym mm. um, and I was very obsessed with all these sort of um, fad diets and things. Um, it was it was totally different and I, it wasn't severe, but... I was also suffering a lot with like recurrent tonsillitis. And I think I'd convinced myself that I was uh, being sick and I was losing weight because of that. When actually, I I think looking back, I was probably doing it more, um, more to myself than I realized. Um, But I did get to a point where I was like, this is not healthy um, and I'm not happy. And I think if I carry on, it it can, it could become more dangerous. Um, So I think, having gone through the descent before I saw the warning signs a lot clearer. It was almost like someone was waving a f- red flag in my face. Like, don't, don't do this. Don't go here. Um, you clearly have the tools to be able to manage your life and pick yourself up when things, things don't go your way. I know, I know you've had some more tough times. Yeah. But also this tonsillitis thing, mm-hmm. throat chakra, you know, being able to express yourself, not to be able to express yourself. I know you're also a singer. So yes. I just want to talk a little bit about creativity and singing mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and how essential it is for us to be creative, whether it's painting a chair or reading a book or writing a novel, but to actually um, be active with our creativity. And I think that kind of repressed creative energy. Yeah causes all sorts of problems. So let's talk about vocalizing emotions and and singing and how that is for you and how that helps you with your um, emotional well-being. I would say that is one of the most fundamental things for me. So I come from a family of musicians. Do you? Um, Yeah. So um, my auntie is a music teacher. My uncle is a professional singer. My granddad restores... um, old pianos to to use them as well which is obviously a very specialized profession and my grandma was a music teacher for years as well um and you know my other auntie is an amazing thing she has got a different career path but you know she sings a lot so we we've all I've grown up surrounded by music uh going to concerts you know theater all of that stuff and that's been such an important part of my life um so I think 
for me, I've been singing for as long as I can remember. I don't remember a time when I didn't sing or I didn't perform. Um, you know, I was very, very theatrical, even as a young child. Um, and having spoken to like uh, family friends as well, I always, apparently, I always knew what I wanted, even when I was like nine or 10. Um, and I would choreograph all these dances at school and run my sister, run rings around my sister, forcing her to do all these dances. And we'd like put on little concerts in the, in the sitting room. Um, so it's just, it's, it's not ever felt like it's something that I have to try out. It's just something that comes from me. Um, did you, did you do any of that when you were ill? Well, that was another thing. It was because for me, punish, the punishment when I was ill was depriving myself of things I loved. Right. Um, the, I mean, the main part was that I didn't have the energy. I literally didn't have any energy to sing. So I didn't sing for, for months. Um, and I remember this one time that, you know, I spent the whole of the Christmas period in, in hospital um, and I didn't eat um, anything on Christmas Day. And I remember it was just so miserable. And I waited all day for my family to come and see me. And when they came, they came in singing. So they they were singing in different parts. We call it the Carpenter Choir, um, <laughs> and they were all singing this this hymn. Oh uh, gosh! But and they came to sit by my bed, and at first I was refusing to sing, um, and I really wanted to. All I wanted to do was was sing with them, but obviously I had this. You know, the the voice was saying, you know, you can't. You're not allowed to do things that you enjoy. That was a big thing for throughout my whole illness, and even now, the first thing to go if I'm stressed is you don't deserve that or you shouldn't be doing things that you love because it's self-indulgent. I suppose it links back to all that indulgence thing relating to food. But I remember really feeling so tormented because all I wanted to do was sing. And I then eventually was like, okay, I'm going to do it. And I started singing and then I just like sobbed. I remember it was such a big thing, but they were so thrilled that I'd sung with them. Um, and I sort of, that was another thing as well. I was like, why am I depriving myself of all these things that I love doing? Um, so yeah, I definitely, getting back into that was really important. And obviously when I went back to school eventually and um, I did music GCSE and um, I was, you know, worked my absolute bum off that year because I was doing all of my year 10 and 11 coursework and exams at the same time. Um, and yeah. I was very blessed that, you know, my teachers stayed behind all hours of the evening to, to do it with me. That was a big thing as well, sort of, creatively awakening again doing all the music and the performing and everything it was amazing it's it's beautiful I'm very struck by that image of your family coming in in fact it makes me want to cry and I'm also struck by the fact that they're called the Carpenter Choir and Karen (laughs) Karen Carpenter died from anorexia didn't she yes yeah she was the first I remember she was one of the first people I'd read about having anorexia and I was quite struck that it was Oh no, it wasn't even that long ago, but I think she was one of the first public figures that to, to suffer from anorexia. Yeah, yeah and it she was, was so deeply misunderstood. We're going to um, take we're going to take a quick break, okay? Yeah. Okay. Now, welcome back to Love This Food Thing podcast. I am here with Gracie. We were just talking about creativity, weren't we, Gracie? And in the break, we started to talk about writing. Yeah, and I'm fascinated. I think I think I've probably I have mentioned this before on the podcast between about the relationship between creativity and, in particular, eating disorders. Um, and I, I write. What would you is writing a same similar experience for you as singing? It's yeah. So it's very natural, and I would say for me, I find writing um is is almost a natural response if i'm feeling stressed like when i was in hospital i wrote 
probably about f- 15 diaries. I was just writing constantly. Can I just and- interrupt? Did anyone, because I think writing is an essential part of the recovery process mm-hmm. for everybody. Was anyone else writing? Oh, yeah. They, so they were born creatives, all the girls on the ward. So they would, a lot of them were artists. Um, and I would find that quite therapeutic as well. So we'd often sit in this sort of communal area and I'd watch them paint, um, you know, another one knitted profusely, like, you know, very, very creative, yeah. all of them. Um, I would say very few of them were more like sort of technical, I suppose, methodical, mathematical. Yeah. It, it all felt like we were more creative in that sense. Um and so, yeah, I think that was that was really interesting as well. But um, I remember when I was first admitted to the paediatric ward um, to, to essentially restore my weight before I was admitted to a psychiatric ward, um, I wrote a lot of, of poems and short stories and I would give them to my grandparents to sort of explain how I was feeling mm. because I couldn't vocalise it a lot of the time and a lot of the time... I would either be so weak or crippled by things going on in my brain when people were talking to me that I couldn't really articulate well enough how, how I felt. Um, and I remember I wrote, wrote this poem called Him, which was all about the eating disorder voice. Um, and I wrote it out and I worked on it for about a week and I gave it to granddad. And I remember he just wept as he read it. But he just said at the end, thank you for explaining it because I understand it more now. Um, but that that was that felt the only way really that I could fully convey because it, it, it was it was a more structured articulate way of explaining it whereas when I tried speaking about it it would just come out in murmurs or I don't know I'd get put off so I think that was really important to be able to just say look this is how I'm feeling this is this is what it means um rather than trying to get the words out myself have you done anything with the stuff that you wrote then or is it it's firmly, firmly for then, and and now you, you, it's very different. Well, I actually, so my degree was uh, majority French, but I also did a creative writing element of it, mm-hmm. um, and that was amazing as well. So I did a lot of stuff uh, that contributed to, towards my degree, and I really loved that. Um, but and I, I still do write all the time. Um, a lot of a lot of um, you know a lot of just shorter notes sometimes when they just come to me, and I have to. Yeah, I, I was. I'm almost compelled to get it out. Yeah, and I always feel better when it's out, um, and I often just read what I've written back myself, and it's interesting to see where I was in certain times of my life as well. Um, but I would eventually love to write a book. Um, I've, that's always been a goal of mine. I think it's it's highly likely that you will. Let's move on just before we finish the interview. We're nearly we're nearly nearly done. Um, to, so two things I always say: just two things. Then I realise we've done about ten things. You talked about your email, which I didn't read out. You talked about dealing with perfectionism, body dysmorphic disorder, which I think we have touched on with the animalistic, but we don't need to talk about that. You talked about grief and being a high achiever. I'm interested in in that and how you manage, because clearly that's how you see yourself, how you manage that narrative now in your life now, and also how you would describe and how you maintain this is a lot of info, maintain a positive relationship with yourself because it is about how you feel about yourself and your place in the world, isn't it? Yes, no, definitely. I mean, for me, I think that is something that I will work out for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. Um, and as much as I'd love to sort of take a round of antibiotics and suddenly <laughs> be positive and love myself every day and not have to work at it, 
I think that's just something that I'm learning all the time. And even when I look back to when I finished university two years ago, I feel very, very different and like I've progressed a lot. Um, Another thing I'd say is that we are surrounded by a world of befores and afters. And I think it's very easy to like look at a picture of when I was so underweight and now and think, oh my gosh, um, I've changed so much and I'm a different person. And obviously I am, but I think sometimes I, I get lost. And even with this podcast, I was thinking I'm not fully, fully recovered. And who am I to sort of tell my story when I'm not fully where I want to be? But then I was thinking, am I ever, am I, Am I ever going to sit back and think, oh, I'm fully where I want to be. I've got everything sorted out. And I'm glad that's being talked about a lot more because I think as humans, we all like seek this like eureka moment. And we all think that we'll get there and we'll look and we'll think everything's perfect. I've got, I've done everything right. And I've made it, the I made it moment. And I honestly just don't know if, if that ever happens. I think there's always something that we think that we can do better or that we can work on. And I think... I've tried to make peace with that a lot and and actually think that you can still talk about things and be an advocate when you're not fully healed. Absolutely. Who better to talk about it? I remember yeah. going to a therapist when I was 20, 21, 22. Yeah. And she said to me, you do understand that you're not going to reach Nirvana. And yeah. I looked at her. I said, what do you mean? She said, well, yeah. you're not going to have therapy and suddenly everything's magical and yeah. you're in this land where nothing bad happens and as I've got older I've realized that the notions of acceptance and surrender mm. and being in the present and turning up and being able to pick yourself up when things happen and dust yourself down those that's nirvana those are the eureka moments absolutely and I think that's as recovery well talking about yeah I completely agree um I think as well we were talking about the the perfectionist side and also mm. sort of maintaining a positive relationship with yourself and that mm. I definitely think that's the thing I probably struggle with the most is being kind to myself but also being gentle to myself yeah yeah, yeah. because I feel like I am always thinking I could do this I could do this what can I do next like rushing around at 100 miles per hour I you know I find it difficult to ever feel totally zen because I'm often thinking about what I'm doing next um and I think that's you know my recent the last few months I've, I've, I've found myself sort of crashing a bit and burning out a lot and I realized that a lot of people around me actually don't don't operate in the same way as me um they don't put that pressure on themselves and they're actually obviously just from an obs observational level and talking to them I don't know the full extent but a lot of people don't don't operate in this 500 miles per hour way that I do. And actually they are happier than I was at that time. And I found that really interesting. Yeah, but the, the, there is no total Zen. I mean, and it's all right no. when you have, a, when you, have a, a, you know, you said having a positive relationship with yourself. I think it's, um, I'm trying to think of a different phrase, but more, let's say it's like having a, a um, healthy or natural relationship with yourself, yeah. sometimes you fall out with yourself and sometimes you give yourself a hard time and that's all right. Because if it doesn't knock you sideways, then that's all right. It's if you're constantly berating yourself and criticizing yourself and painting yourself as a victim, whatever, you know, all those things that we, we do. Absolutely, yeah. A balance, isn't it? Definitely. Um and I think that's that's something that I've always found difficult. I think as well, I I tend to lose myself in 
um, what I've achieved academically and work-wise and, and what qualifications I've got and what I've done. And, you know, I've done so much of that stuff, but I, I often have, you know, my, my friends and family often tell me, Grace, what you've achieved personally is more than a lot of people will ever do. And I think I have to remember that sometimes that regardless of what job I'm in or, or what degree I've got or what other qualifications or anything I've done that can be put on a piece of paper, that other stuff is is should be more important to me, I think. And I have to not lose sight of, of that because that's a battle and a, an achievement that not many people my age w- would, would be able to say that they've done, I suppose. I'm going to throw you a curveball before we finish. Okay. And then I'm going to ask you the final question. Yeah. What would you advise a mother who has a child with anorexia or an eating disorder and that child is, well, same age as you and try and make it succinct? Is there any advice? There's so many things. I think it's so tricky. I mean, from what I observed from grandma and granddad who were essentially my parents they often felt to blame and I think the the most important thing to remember is that no parent is to blame for their child becoming anorexic never ever 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 because I think you know especially it's often seen as like I failed as a parent or how could I not have have known or what could I have done differently and actually the descent into anorexia is so focused and so intense and so tunnel visioned that there isn't really anything anyone can do um, if 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 someone is so intent on going down that path. What would you um, What would you say? What would you say to the child then that's intent on going down that path? I'd love to say don't, but I think that's too idealistic. Yeah. Um, I I think you know having been that child, anything anyone said wouldn't have made me put the brakes on. Yeah. I think sharp intervention is always needed. Um, and I think it's really difficult to know what to say because everyone is so different. But I would say that um, I, I wouldn't fill them with false hope. Um, and I wouldn't also tell them they're never going to get better. I was often told that, you know, there, there might not be much hope they'll ever make a full recovery. And I, I remember thinking, oh, OK, well, what's the point then? Um, and I think it's important to find a balance, be realistic about what it's going to take. But but find that balance of not not being idealistic but not being pessimistic either because I think hearing someone a doctor say to you that it's you know it's it's really bad and not many people ever get fully better that's really difficult to hear and I don't think it's helpful okay okay well I think that's very sound of what you've just said if you were going to an island any island any climate and you have a store cupboard Mm-hmm. What five foods would you take with you? <sighs> Everyone's Everyone's size. I would take grandma's Tuscan bean soup. Oh. It's her. I've never, like, no one can make any anything as good as grandma, but I would take her Tuscan bean soup. Yeah. that. that. Mm-hmm. I would also take her spaghetti bolognese because... Those two things are like ultimate comfort to me. You know you're, che- you're cheating. Home. You know you're cheating by taking meals, but I'm going to let you. Oh, am I not? Oh, no, no, no. Take them. I'm letting you. I'm letting you. Taking spaghetti bolognese, Tuscan bean soup. Okay. Um, oh, let me think. I would take um, an iced coffee. Mm. 
And I would also take some syrups with me. Mm. I'd take French vanilla and I'd take hazelnut. <gasps> What's the last one? I would take... I would probably take some Tony's chocolate. <laughs> yeah. Which one? Almond and hazelnut. So you wouldn't be chocolonely? Chocolonely, chocolonely. Yeah. <laughs> but it's a good chocolate because when I eat it, I don't feel guilty because I don't feel <laughs> like it's not like intensely sugary. It's, I don't and, know, and it's fancy, so I feel like it's not as bad. <laughs> I, I, yeah, exactly. And you're saving the planet while you eat it. Yeah, it's, yeah. <laughs> it's great. Is there, it, I, I feel like we've covered as much as we can cover. Is there anything that else that you would like to say that I've missed out? I think, I you know, I just, I've just so enjoyed enjoyed this sounds a strange word but I have enjoyed just being able to to talk about things and tell my story and hopefully you know help people with what I've said ah amazing I'm calling you the amazing Gracie amazing Grace Carpenter I'm in awe of your um your take on it all you see lost for words that's all I can manage to say take on it all and because you're a singer and we did this with another guest Stella Angelica we are going to hear Gracie singing singing us out for the end of episode two Gracie Carpenter thank you well thank you for having me thanks for tuning in to this episode of love this food thing if you'd like to reach me I'm on instagram at love this food thing or you can head to our website lovethisfoodthing.com join our community everyone's welcome catch you in the next episode <laughs>